It's cool. the same with cordyceps. That I mean, you know, it it, it changes the behavior of the insects so that they will typically go to a higher levels in in the in the trees so that then when the cordyceps burst out the back of their head um it's able to shower spores on the rest of the ants so it's trying to turn the zombie ants into this dispersal mechanism i can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments the game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blabcoats, my name is Amit Siddiqui. So on this week's episode, I got the chance to sit down and talk to Dr. Oliver Morden, who is a microbiologist um, that is fascinated with fungi. I really enjoyed my conversation with um, Oliver, he's a really funny guy, um, and his journey was very interesting, and uh, his re research is very interesting as well. So um, before I, I actually uh, start the interview, with him. Uh, I do need to mention that um, if you guys could like and, and give us some feedback on our Facebook page, that would be awesome. Uh, and also, um, I have my friend's company over here. Uh, he's got a tutoring company called Intuitive Education uh, at Campbelltown. So you can actually check out his tutoring company. Um, I'm not going to say www, even though I just said it like an idiot. <laughs> But it's intuitive hyphen, so that's not underscore, it's intuitive hyphen education.com. Uh, and the mobile phone number is 0416-897-018. 0416-897-018. So if you need a tutor for a family member or friends or whatever, um, let Kyle know, send him an, uh, a message or um, hit him up and, and check out his website. Um, Without further ado, I suppose this is my interview with Dr. Oliver Morden. Hope you guys enjoy it. Anyway, yeah, I thought you were going to go with the standard Australian, um, how are you going? And when I first arrived here, I get uh, by train. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was like, your journey? Well, I got on at Redfern. <laughs> and I changed at Clyde. And, and, uh, and sometimes that's a, that's a bit like a, a journey into science. So and I, I guess like if you're doing the David Copperfield thing, well, I was young in the beginning and um i wanted to be a marine biologist really when i was a, when i was just a, a little and uh you know because i thought sharks were cool and uh i thought you know beautiful oceans full of fish whales and stuff it'll be brilliant and then you realize you live in ireland and the water's brown yeah, yeah. the, the water's the, what brown it's, it's 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 dark it's murky everything's brown and gray you know like when you come to australia from 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 ireland you know when you go to coals at the fish country you know it's like going to an exotic aquarium <laughs> Every, <coughs> everything back home is gray or brown no, yeah they are they're all gray or brown no, it's, just, it's it's just really dull you know and the, and the sharks i mean they could eat a fish but they're not going to hurt a person <laughs> you know yeah it's 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 you know um it's it's just not the same and i i sort of you know um 
when you realize that you're just like well you need to adapt your options a little bit yeah. to what you're doing and they, they still do marine biology but it's just it's not the tv stuff it's not jacques right. cousteau you know out in the ocean you know um so uh, and and i guess that was when when i was young but i had the idea that i'd wanted to be a scientist at that point and right. i'd always been pretty good at biology so that came natural to you yeah yeah i mean that was what i pretty much had an aptitude for um and i think i think that's handy you know, um, right. just generally in, in anything, go with the thing you enjoy. Mm. You know, because lo- life is longer than you expect. And a lot of people say life's short, but when you're spending time at a bus stop, it seems very long. <laughs> and um, you don't want your your work day to be like hanging at a bus stop or waiting for the dentist. You want to enjoy it. You yeah. want to kind of skip to work. Yeah, no, that's so true. I mean, I've spoken to a few people on this podcast, and I think the most, like, the advice that I like the best is when they tell us to actually do what they enjoy because it's such a good point i mean um if you spend your life doing things that you don't enjoy to make a living so that you can go on living that is to do things that you don't enjoy to make a living i I think it's just a vicious cycle of unhappiness yeah yeah apparently it's what marriage is like (laughs) (laughs) boom you're not married no i don't see any ring oh um uh, i just just like to give everyone a hard time (laughs) i like Uh, it yeah um what was I going to say? Yeah, I, I mean, you have to enjoy what you do. I mean, I think the saying is, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And yeah. I think that's the ideal. You know, and, it, and if, you're, if you love doing carpentry and stuff, then, then do that, you know. You, For sure. I think sometimes there's a, there's a strong pressure on people to go to university when it's not really for them. Yeah. I think if, if you found that you weren't academically inclined at school, university is the same, just the teachers don't care. Yeah, that's so true. You know, you know, it's 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 not suddenly a magical world where you're going to have a, a completely different experience. No. Um, you can have a much worse experience because nobody's chasing you. Right. You know, so if you, if you're not motivated or interested in it, you're just going to rack up a debt for no good reason. That's true. But if that's what really excites you, if if you want to learn, you know, and if finding out new things mm. or you have a particular area of interest and you know, by going to university, you can develop that interest and that can set you up for your future, then it's a very good always, yeah, do it. good thing. Because I think what's happened a lot over the last, you know, certainly, you know, mm-hmm. since, since, you know, coming here and being more involved in academia, um, you know, there, a lot of students feel pressured to end up in university, I think. Mm. Um, whether that's family pressure or, Sorry. Yeah. you know, and... Um, it's not necessarily for everyone. So I think in terms of the journey, it needs to make sense, mm. you know, what you go on to do. Yeah. Um, I, I think you raise a really good point. I mean, I've been involved in teaching almost four years here now. Yeah. And I, I love seeing students yeah. who are really passionate and are driven. Um, even though yeah. they don't know what they want to do, yeah. they are just following their passion and, and desires. And then conversely, I see students who are, just there for the sake of being yeah. there because their parents expect this of them, their family expects yeah. this of them and they just put a shit effort through and it, yeah. there's almost no point. You're in debt for like yeah. 30 grand. You've learned nothing because you have a yeah. degree that's predominantly passes and yeah. credits or fails or whatever. And at the yeah. end of the day, you're like, well, that's three, four years of my life wasted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I you know, just look, if, 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 you, if you want a career in retail, then doing a science degree is not a good option. 
it's funny because a lot of science students yeah, go into retail. They, they do, don't they? I mean, because a, a lot of students work in, you know, in, in various retail outlets. And, and, you know, that's good if that's your short-term right. thing. But but if that's really what you're interested in, you know, um, you should really do business. That's right, yeah. Or, you know, uh, economics or, or, or something. But um, I always knew that... Uh, I kind of wanted to do biology. That, uh-huh. that, that was my thing. I mean, for a while, I was kind of thinking I should do business. So when I was at school, I was able to cover myself right. a bit by doing a mix of, you know, science and, and business type topics. But ba- basically, once I was ready to go to university, I wanted to do biology. At that point, though, I didn't necessarily know what I was going to be doing exactly. Right. You know, so I thought I would, I would tend towards zoology. Mm. So you were still interested in animals? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, as long as it wasn't people, I was good. <laughs> you know, I, I, I never had an interest in doing medicine. Right. You know, so, so that was never something that interested me. You just me. didn't want to deal with sick people? Was that the case? You know what? You know, people are hard work on a good day. But meeting people on their worst day, you know, sick people, screaming babies, you know, these yeah. people are not happy. Right. And, and also the families of sick people are not happy either. You know, so it's, it's not the best time to catch people. Yeah. I think you need a good manner no, or, or at least a lot of patience. Yeah. And you got to want to do it. I think so. I yeah. think, I mean, you know, we could, we, we could spend half an hour talking about the issues that have begun to crop up in medical teaching and, and in medicine recently, which is there's a lot of people are going into it for the wrong reasons, like for status and, you know, for golf membership and... You know, the, well, you know, just, you know, it goes along with having money, uh, right? So right, they think right. they're going to have a very good living, um, yeah. and you can do. But again, you know, it's about dealing with people who are at their most vulnerable. I mean, mm-hmm. if you don't care about them, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to get as, as good a service. And then people turn to things like homeopathy because in, you know, there's, there's no science behind it, but they get very good care. That's people right. listen to them. Yeah. Um, and so they feel like they have a much better experience than somebody going, take two of these, don't get out. Yeah, no, yeah. that's true. Like you have a 10 minute in, in yeah. interaction with your doctor, whereas yeah. if you go to a homeopath, you get an mm-hmm. hour. Yeah. And, and th- that human interaction is, it's actually really fascinating mm-hmm. because medicine is a bit of voodoo, mm-hmm. right? So if you well, believe something is going to help you, it helps the you. The placebo effect is, is real. Yeah, even when you're taking yeah. med- medication, mm-hmm. right? It's you usually realize that it's working once you notice the side yeah. effects, and that enforces the placebo. But even the thing is, if you feel better, even if your disease is not changing, mm-hmm. that's still a better outcome for, for sure. the patient. Yeah, you know, you you can either be bedridden and depressed about your life, mm-hmm. or you can at least be happy about the time you've got left. That's true. And and, and go and keep living. So yeah. I. Th- but, you know, part of the problem in medicine is how, how do you recruit people with empathy? Yeah. You know, people who, who are able to respond to other human beings rather than, you know, I've got to do 10 appointments an hour. I've got to, you know, get them out the door quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, but in terms of, yeah, my journey, that wasn't something I was particularly interested in doing. Why were you drawn towards biology? I think I've always just been, you know, from a kid, you know, I, I liked having pets. I was like going to zoos. I know that's controversial, but you don't know when you're five years old that it's, it's bad for the animals. Yeah. You know, maybe I should just visit in prisons. <laughs> <laughs> I would have liked people more. Who knows? Right. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and I suppose because, you know, I just spent all my, I guess it's all David Attenborough's fault. Oh, really? Yeah. You've watched these documentaries when you were from, young? From 
all the time. Really? You know, um, mainly when I became more of a professional scientist, I was less interested because I got less out of them. Uh-huh. Um, because I, I, I felt that, you know, as a kid in that, it was a great way to learn about the world. And I think I was interested about how life works and, you know, how cool. the world works. And I think, you know, you get that through pursuing biology. Right. But, um, but as you become more of a professional scientist, these type of TV shows aren't, you know, you can see you get annoyed by what they're not covering. Yeah, right, right. They, they run up a lot of kind of dead ends. I remember there was one about the workings of the universe with Sam Neill. I think the BBC and Discovery spent a lot of money on it. He spent most of the time talking about questions he never answered. <laughs> and uh, I, just, I, I just began to f- find them, you know, incredibly frustrating. Because, <laughs> um, they, they, you know, um, but, but that's the difference, you know, at a certain point, you've got to move beyond, that's right. you, you know, what, what people can, can show in that format. Yeah. And, uh, you know, become extrangely interested in single protein. You know, and, and, you know, just two isoforms of a protein and, you know, focus down at a, right. at a tiny level. But, uh, but no, so when I, when I got to university, I thought I want to do biology. And, but, you know, at, at that point, I guess it's, it's the opposite of, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, whereas if you know nothing, you think you know everything. I mean, I was just like, the more I started to learn, the more I realized I didn't know anything or I hadn't appreciated, you know, the vastness of, mm. of what was out there. And, um, yeah, just in uh, first year biology, I was just, you know, I was going like plants are pretty cool, which which was a surprise. And then these fungi things were awesome, and I was like, these are cool. Um, but but also I was doing geology, and I thought, you know, and that was cool until um, we had a lecturer who was going through crystallography, and he looked like Mr. Bean, and I just just couldn't take it seriously anymore. <laughs> you ruined geology. <laughs> he re- he did, well, ma- mainly crystallography because I was just like, I I don't care about dodecahedrons this much <laughs> you know and, and and then it turned out that the interesting parts of geology required a lot more mathematics and physics right. than i was necessarily comfortable right. with um but no so so i kept on biology path and then in you know because the irish system is a four-year undergrad mm. um so typically we do a lot of subjects mm-hmm. in high school and so you can't do each of them to a super high level so the first year is mostly about you know bringing bringing up your level in chemistry and physics and maths and biology and maybe computing depending on what you want to do in second year is more like um full fat university mm. um so that was sort of where i was able to do zoology as a subject and botany because they split up the sciences and uh, microbiology but that was mainly industrial microbiology so i think sometimes your exposure to a subject can be you know, very important, mm-hmm. the, the way it's presented. So industrial micro didn't really interest me that greatly. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, obviously, I'm a, I teach medical microbiology and with, you know, elements of applied microbiology. But when I was 18 or 19, I didn't, I was like, I don't want to work in a factory mm-hmm. making enzymes, right. you know, uh, or doing quality control in a food factory and stuff. It just didn't seem very interesting. What did you want to do at the age? I was like, I, I was still not sure. Like like the path, I I knew I had another couple of years left in university, and hopefully right. I'd I'd figure it out. Yeah. yeah. So you said botany, microbiology, and zoology. And zoology. And mm-hmm. do you, which of those did you get drawn into? I, I I suspect it was microbiology, right? Well, no. I, I mean, the way they'd presented microbiology wasn't that Appealing? interesting because it was industrial. Oh, industrial. Okay. Uh, and so that was far too applied. But thanks to a little quirk of fate. 
um, mycology was taught in the botany departments because originally they thought fungi were plants. Oh. And so they, they, hadn't, they also didn't have a pure microbiology department. So I was able to study fungi in botany. Wow. And that's where I really got stuck into them because oh. I was like, these things are awesome. You know, because you don't realize, you know, at that point, I, I just want fungi or mushrooms and I don't like them that much, you know. Um, you know, but if they're hidden in food, they're okay. Yeah. But I'm not going to eat one by itself, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but then you find out, you know, things about mycorrhizal fungi, which extend a root network of plants and then help plants to communicate with each other. And it's like, this stuff's crazy. I didn't know these things existed. And sort of, I, did, I just thought mushrooms were these distinct little things, right. but the mushrooms just a tiny part of this much larger network. Right. And, and so all this stuff that comes up in Avatar about all the plants talking to each other, it's not the plants, it's the fungi that are letting them talk it's to each other. And, and, and so I got really fascinated and I was looking at, you know, plant pathogenic fungi were really interesting as well in terms of how they were able to pick the lock and break into the house, you know, and actually cause infection. And it turned out that this this kind of problem-solving by pathogens, which really interesting as well. So I became much more interested in that than um, than I was in zoology right. or in micro at the time. Right. You, you mentioned uh, the, the micros, uh, or I should say, the, the fungal relationship with, with uh, trees and, and plants. Yeah. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think yeah. that's fascinating. So it's, it's a really... I mean, it's one of those areas that most people don't appreciate, but um, all flowering plants, um, the angiosperms, 95% of them form associations with fungi. Mm. And these are beneficial symbiotic relationships. So a lot of plants grow in areas where they have difficulty obtaining nutrients. So plants are kind of restricted to the types of forms of phosphorus and nitrogen they can acquire from the soil. So they form symbioses with fungi because fungi can degrade organic sources of nitrogen mm-hmm. and phosphorus. So they can obtain nutrients that the plants can't get hold of. And in return for this, the plants give them sugars. Mm. And so they form this nice symbiosis. And basically what happens as well is the fungi are very fine hair-like structures which basically extend the root system and so they provide a much larger surface area as well for uptake of moisture Mm. and various nutrients and they are able to channel these but what happens with the fungus is it just continually grows as this large clonal organism so it can connect more than one plant so that what they found is that plant signaling molecules move through the network of the fungus as well so that they can talk to each other Right. You know, and, and, and this is sort of at the edges of, you know, where, where that type of research is now right. is, you know, what, what does communication mean yeah. in these organisms? You know, you know, we, do we know enough about plants? You know, because in some ways we see them as very static objects, and, but they actually seem to do a lot more complex things and they can signal to each other. And it's also, you know, the fungi may be facilitating these communication networks and they found that. I think it was a single forest in the west coast of the U.S. When they did sampling, they found that the whole forest was connected by a single clone of one fungus. Wow. So I think that came up as they did some mathematics, and this would be the largest single organism on the planet. Wow. Is this in South America somewhere? No, in North America. North America. Yeah, because in you the know north, they, in the north, uh, um, so up the west coast of the U.S. Yeah, northwest, yeah. Yeah, I think Washington State right. kind of area, because that's very forested. But you know, so so in these areas, um, they're all connected, 
you know, by by these fungi, and they actually, you know, um, make mycorrhizal fungi as uh, fertilizer supplements. You know, so you know you're trying to grow a plant in your garden. Your garden's not great, so you add these, fungi. and they they help it to grow better. Oh, that's so cool. That's yeah, so, cool. so you know because. The, the closest that plants really get to obtaining organic sources of nitrogen that is like a Venus flytrap. Oh, yeah. You know, or, or one of those pitcher plants where they catch insects. Yep. And so they're doing that because they, they want to get, you know, amino acids and they want to get nitrogen and phosphate and stuff that, you know, other plants can do by their associations with, mm. with fungi. Right. So, so th- I mean, that's sort of one of the cool areas. I, I sort of moved away from that. Before we, we move on, I, I just wanted to... I heard that um, this fungi can actually... So if, if there's a whole network of, of trees, if there's a sick plant, it can actually draw nutrients from the healthy plants and direct it to the sick uh, plant. Potentially. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's possible. I mean, it's it's it takes a lot of experimentation right. to, to figure that out. But... I think the other thing is that, you know, some plant pathogenic fungi also use this type of moving between roots to infect other plants as well. So so it's not all necessarily good news. Right, right. Um, But what they are finding is that some of these fungi that grow in association with the plants um, help protect them from infection as well. Okay. Um, So there's a lot of work on what are called endophytes, which are microbes that grow within the plants. Oh, so it's like uh, like like the the plant's own microbiome. Wow. Um, so so there's a lot of work moving into that area, as well. Um, so I think you know the the good thing about any sort of science is, is that people who are doing really good experiments just they actually you know lead to many more questions. You know, and and you know it, it brings you back to like ideas that you know there's there's a quote that's you know, attributed to the Surgeon General in the U.S. in sort of the 60s, and they declared the war on infectious diseases to be over, <laughs> you know, because they had antibiotics, you know, nobody saw resistance right. coming, right. you know, nobody saw the AIDS epidemic, you right. know, nobody, you know, knew any of this was coming, and they were like, well, it was like the guy in the patents office at the end of the 1900, 1800 saying, well, you know, nothing else is going to be invented. <laughs> You know, if it, p- people have these the, these crazy ideas, but once once people actually do some good work, it just right. it shows you what's what's out there or what needs to be discovered. And right. and so I think you know any any scientist who's doing their work well is finding some answers, but more questions. More questions, yeah, for sure. You know, and and that that's good for students. Yeah, because then we need students to, to help us to answer the answer the questions, yeah. but also generate some new questions, yeah. which is then good for you know your career. Right, you know, potentially because hopefully it's those questions that will keep you occupied for forty years. Yeah, because we got to keep you guys off the streets. <laughs> <laughs> These hooligans. <laughs> exactly, you know, it's hooligan scientists just losing control and yeah, mob mentality, breaking beakers on the streets and <laughs> yeah, well, you, nobody want look, nobody breaks beakers on the streets. They're too valuable. Oh, that's true. You know, you know, that's um, the 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 whole meth lab industry is another conversation. <laughs> I don't have. I'm not a chemist. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so you you did that work on 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 fungi. Yeah. Then how did you transition? Did you get into research? So when when I was an an undergrad, I I worked on these fungi that associate with plant roots, and um, and I was sick for about a year after my first degree, um, but at the end of my first degree, I'd pretty much decided I wanted to 
continue you know this path of learning so mm. so that meant postgraduate research and um i got really good grades mostly as well i mean you you need that kind of positive reinforcement i think as well to mm. show you that what you're doing is, is is the right path i think you know i got the highest grades in bosony so nice. i stayed with that as my major you know which is you know but not to brag about the highest marks in all the subjects i did but i just got higher ones in bosony whereas relatively they were all the same but it just looked better <laughs> you know um and uh, and so i i pursued that that course and um at the time this was before ireland had you know before the global financial crisis but also before the economy was doing really well mm -hmm. And there was really very limited sort of investments in science in, in Ireland. So um, I went to Britain to do my PhD. So uh, in Britain, they would actually, you know, give you a stipend. So it's a bit like the scholarship. um, postgraduate scholarships yeah. available in, in Australia. And uh, those were competitive, but it was a bit like a job interview. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up doing uh, an EU-funded project in Britain, which won't be possible after Brexit. So, you know, that's a door that's, right. that's closed on a few people. Um, but yeah, so, and, and that was a slightly different area, but it was in um, looking at crop research and how fungi could be used to prevent certain plant parasites from causing disease. Okay. So there are a group of worms called nematodes, or in American, nematodes. Yep. And um, they were, they cause plant parasitic diseases. So two of the major ones are, um, root knot disease and root gall disease um, and so they disfigure the roots so that the plants can take up nutrients and therefore they don't flower and produce fruit as well so it's a real problem mm. in tomatoes and potatoes and mainly what they'd found was that it was a huge problem in southern Europe because they use a lot of glasshouse horticulture and and so the the guy who who I eventually did a PhD for um, had done work on how um, certain soils seem to be suppressive to these nematodes. Like the plants grown in these soils mm. don't develop infection, and it turned out there were two fungi that mm. that killed off these 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 nematodes. One of them was an obligate parasite, so it couldn't be cultured. And they did this discovery in the 70s, and you know they they had no chance um but the other one was was just a standard soil fungus which happened to like attacking nematode eggs ah and so if it attacked the nematode eggs it decreased the overall abundance of nematodes and therefore the crops ah. were, were less affected and so they were working on that for for several years and trying to formulate it and figure out how it would you know be converted into a biological control agent and when I went there, they were very interested in, you know, utilizing molecular biology to start mm. looking at the virulence factors mm. that allowed the fungus to attack the nematodes and, you know, dissect that. And and so I never did any field work, which is probably handy. So I never got to roll in the dirt, but um, <laughs> I was in the Department of Soil Science, <laughs> you know, which... Which is hard to explain to people, right? You know, when you tell your relatives, your elderly relatives, that you're in the Department of Soil Science, and like, so what kind of job can you get with that? <laughs> you know, and and it's like, are there buckets? <laughs> you know, and and me begonias. That's How do a, I make those grow better? <laughs> Look, 
I think you've got the wrong idea about what I've been studying. You know, because that was the other thing. I'd done a degree in Bosnia, and yet right. I couldn't grow any plants or veggies. Yeah. You know, and they're like, well, well I know how they work. Yeah. It doesn't mean I know how to grow them. That's so funny. You know, so... Yeah. Um, it's funny because before the podcast, you and I were talking about, you know, we can talk about dirt if that's yeah. what interests you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are talking about dirt. It, look, in the... I, Ashes to ashes, dust yeah. to dust. You know, you, we always end up there um, eventually. Um, but but yeah, so so I did a lot of um, bio biological work on the actual fungus itself, looking at enzymes it produced that allowed it to grow into the nematode eggs. So basically, these nematodes they burrow into the roots, and then they produce a reaction where the root deforms but they leave their eggs on the outside of the root surface and so the fungus grows onto these root onto these eggs and then just burrows a little hole into the eggshell and then grows throughout the baby worm inside oh. and digests it oh. so what happens is that if these nematodes aren't present that fungus is not very competitive in the soil environment oh. so there are other things that outcompete it right. but when the nematodes are there it gives it access to, you know, a unique resource right. that then allows it to, you know, produce specialized spores that, you know, until the next growing season. So, um, so yeah, so we, we were really interested in that. And just a, just a question. Yeah. So when the nematodes aren't there, can the fungi still survive? But not, not as well. Okay. So they, they'll stay in dormant states sure. or they'll, they'll be in much lower numbers. But they would get activated once you add yeah. some nematodes. Yeah. So you, uh, you could potentially only have a small number of those uh, fungi, even mm. in dormant stage in the soil, and then once the uh, infection happens and they get activated. Yeah, I think ideally you need a high abundance of the fungus. Because again, you know, in a lot of biology, especially microbiology, it's mm. based on probability. So if you were thinking about cubic meters of soil and the organisms, 10 microns across right you know it has to encounter that's right it's food somehow it's yeah. like if i dropped you in the middle of alice springs and said look somewhere in the great sandy desert there's there's a beer right you know you need to find it, find it before before you die <laughs> you know it's it's so you have to look at it from their point of view sure but also so you have to bias the in interactions a lot of the time so that you know a plant root system to us, uh, you know, seems very dense to a thing that's tiny. You know, it may be very hard to actually get there. Mm. So, so you actually need to build up the numbers of the organism to make sure they encounter the nematode. I see. Yeah. So, so you have to think of it in terms of, you know, what does the environment look like with respect to the organism you're trying to introduce? Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, that makes sense, obviously. Um, <laughs> I thought I don't know. I thought maybe no, but most people yet, most but people don't think about don't, yeah. the the spatial. Right. It's like a chemical reaction. I mean, yeah. if the concentrations are low, you yeah, might it's have stoichiometry, to wait weeks, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you're uh, essentially you're focusing on the mechanism of uh, of how the fungi can actually kill the, yep. the baby eggs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kill babies. <laughs> Well, I used to. <laughs> I've stopped that now. I've been rehabilitated. <laughs> <laughs> <You've learned. laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, you know, there was there was pickets by nematodes you know, <laughs> outside the research center going, stop, stop the slaughter <laughs> of nematodes. Yeah, yeah. Can um, you imagine if they did that? It'd be hilarious. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> they were like, look, Free the nematodes. we're, 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 we're going to start infecting humans if you don't. <laughs> you know, um, yes, yeah, so, but, you know, after a while, I, I think one of the problems was around the late 90s and you know, heading to 2000 when I was doing that, there was, there was really, in Britain, again, you, you know, when you go to a career in science and you move around, mm. um, you've sometimes got to go where funding is. Mm -hmm. and, and what was happening there was there were legitimate questions about the future of agriculture in Britain because this was before the global financial crisis, this was before the World Trade Center. And so, you know, countries like Britain were net importers of, of foods. Like, you know, they would get capsicums. They don't grow in Britain, you know, but they're everywhere, you know. And, and so I, it was really tough for farmers at that, that time because um, the prices were going down, the markets were shrinking because mm -hmm. of cheap imports. Um, even in Ireland at that time, there was a net import of potatoes from Eastern Europe, right. which is ridiculous. And, you know, when Irish people, Ireland's famous for potatoes, <laughs> but they, they, you know, production w ha had reduced. And so... So funding was leaving agriculture, right? And, and so there, there was a time where the um, the project I was working on it didn't look like it would be renewed, and and so sometimes you have to check your options and go, you know, what 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 do I need to do to, for myself, mm. you know? And I I had the idea I'd like to, you know, transition into medical microbiology, you know. So you can take the skills that you learn, and and apply them to something else. One of my people I collaborated with in the UK, uh, he'd worked on the microbiology of Antarctic, you know, cores. You know, so he did a lot of soil microbiology and now he um, runs a pathology lab for a hospital. Wow. And, and to a microorganism, humans aren't that different from soil. Really? Really, you know, if, if you think about it, you know, a microbe doesn't perceive you as an individual, it perceives you as a collection of microenvironments and nutrient sources. And so, you know, you present um, somewhere that if they can survive, there's a lot of nutrients. Mm. You know, so all of the extensive microbes that live within you are in specific places where, you know, let's say in your gut, you know, you're at 37 degrees. It's a great temperature for them mm -hmm. to grow. There's always mucus. There's always food being digested. So they have a great life, mm. right? So we're, we're a perfect habitat. And relative to a bacterium, um, you know, the ratio of size of a bacterium to you is you to Australia. Mm. Right. Yes. So, so, so think about your interaction with the continent right. or the country. That's yeah. what a bacterium sees you as. Wow. And actually, Australia is a really good comparison because microbes mostly grow in the center ah. of the body or yeah. around the edges. Ah. Right. Because, you know, and, and everywhere else, like the big sandy desert, there's no water. But microbes typically don't grow in your tissues unless you're ill. Right. So your immune system, you know, keeps them in check, but it keeps them in places where you need and want them. Right. Mm -hmm. So your skin's covered in microbes, but it's not a bad thing. They're meant to be there. Yeah. They, they, you know? they, they help you out. And people yeah. who overuse the um, hand sanitizers yeah. start to develop problems yep. because they've killed the natural yeah. microbes that yep. exist on their hand. And I think the recommendation is soap and water. 
Soap water. That's it. Yeah. You, d- you don't need anything else. No, no. Well, you need to know how to wash your hands properly, yeah. you know, which is always always handy, you know. Yeah, it's handy to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 but, but, you know, it's one of the first things they teach you in sort of micro training, you know, maybe in the first year or the first time you go into a lab is, Washing you know, hands. a professional lab is, here's how to wash your hands. Yeah. And they'll put that stuff on your hands as well, and you wash them, and they'll put it under a light, and you'll find that, you know, all your calluses have uh, have microbes stuck in them, and you're like, "Oh my god, better wear gloves when I'm lifting weights," you know, <laughs> or, or or stop doing things that develop calluses, right. you know. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, you, you have to appreciate um, when you start working in microbiology that mm. they look at things a little bit differently. Your, your perspective changes, and mm. so um, because we anthropomorphize things, just think of yourself in. In, you know, like a, a drop of water to a, a, a microbe is like you being dropped in a lake. Right. It's huge. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, they have no real control over where they're going because surface tension is more important and Brownian motion. And, you know, these things have an, have an effect. Right. Um, fungi are quite good because they form these filamentous networks, which are under pressure so that they have directional movement the whole organism doesn't move but the tips of the organism can move and because they're under this turgor pressure and release enzymes that can grow into tissues or into wood which is how you get your wood rot or you know if you have athlete's foot they start growing through your skin or into your skin so those enzymes break down the barriers and then enable them to and then they're able to push in Ah. so that that's that's their their thing right right so unlike bacteria which kind of don't produce this pressure they just kind of form clumps and then are dispersed by liquids and that fungi have a usual a central starting point and then they grow radially in all directions and what will happen is the amount of growth will depend on nutrient density so if they won't grow very densely in a nutrient poor area but they'll they'll just extend the filaments relatively quickly to try and find some nutrients ah. so what they they've done is they've done these kind of uh experiments with slime molds where they've put a nutrient source you know far away from where the slime mold is and the slime mold will then find the quickest route to the nutrient source and what they found is that they did an experiment trying to figure out, you know, what's the best train route between, let's say, London and Edinburgh. And so they, they got a slime mold to, to grow on it. And they actually found that it found a really quick route. Wow. You know, be, because it's, it's basically they work like a machine learning algorithm almost so that they're testing the environment and, you know, finding the best route between their starting point and where the nutrient source is. Wow. And so it's not like they're thinking about it, but the way they approach they're it. computating. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's it, so it cool. makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, and so, you know, and, and if you look at the way army ants move in the environment, they actually move in a, in, a, in a pattern that looks a lot like the way a fungus grows. Really? Yeah, yeah. So their kind of scavenging f- pattern looks a lot like the way filaments of a fungus grow out. You only notice this if you have fungi on your brain, though. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so... so you know, what, one of the things in your journey is you, you need to have a bit of a, keep an eye on where the wind is blowing. Right. You know, especially with funding. Right. Um, so if, if your local government has said our research area will now be X mm-hmm. and you work on Z. Right. You may want to find somewhere else to work on X. To work. No, yeah. no. Or, or change leave. the Z. Yeah. 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 So you, or leave the country and yeah. go somewhere else. I think 
the the best thing about the journey in science is it takes you places. Right. Like so, I, I've always moved, you know, depending on on what I've needed in my career or where the opportunities were. So I mean. Ireland was a good place at the time to have a, a basic education, but not so good when you wanted to do postgraduate work or to move on and have a career in science right. at the time. Um, so Britain was obviously much better. It's one of the, the real engines of, of research yeah. in the world. Probably not so much in the next few years. <laughs> but, <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, I mean, if you're willing to move, um, then, you know, fungi took me from Ireland to Australia. Okay, so you went to Britain and then to Australia. I went, well, actually, it's slightly more circuitous than that. So I moved to Scotland for a while to work on antifungal drug mechanisms. <clears throat> so I was looking at um, yeast as a model organism of fungus and testing novel antifungal compounds and looking at how the yeast responded and trying to determine the mode of action. So it was a slightly different type of research, but still in fungi. But it gave me a chance to learn some techniques. And I think one of the things a lot of people um, sort of forget is that when you're doing your PhD or maybe your first postdoctoral job, you should be trying to learn as many different things as possible. It's, it's a really good opportunity to learn new things, and you should always be trying to learn yeah. or, or do new things because as a, as a journey, it's, it's also about lifelong learning. And, and I think, you know, most people would say you'll have several careers in your life, even if you don't have several yeah. different careers, you're going to change what you work on right. at several points. So you've always got to be willing to adapt, always change and, and learn new skills. Yeah. yeah. It, how did your skill set change from your PhD to, let's say, your how many postdocs did you I've do? I've done three. You've done three. And so mm. how did that develop? I mean, well, from yeah, a PhD so all the way t to the end so of your postdoc. The PhD was very focused on fungal virulence. But then the, that project in the postdoc, I did a postdoc where I did my PhD um, for two years, and the project changed a lot because it became more focused on plant metabolomics, mm -hmm. so what chemicals were the plants producing. And so that led to a lot more trying to grow plants. Mm -hmm. And for a while, they thought I might be a really good herbicide because all the plants kept dying. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> actually for a second, I was gonna, I was gonna say, now you could go and tell yeah. your grandma, you know, look, I can grow some plants. I but can now. kill them. <laughs> <laughs> just, just leave me in a forest for a day, you know, yeah. and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll get rid of all those pesky trees. Right. Um, but you know, in some ways it's funny, but in other ways, when you're, you know, that's a very important time in your career is your first postdoc you want to be working on something that's going to generate publications and mm -hmm. you know you know set you up for for your career so it's very frustrating when stuff's not working mm -hmm. and and the project had really changed a lot away from what i was really interested in uh, and so i i quit that i think sometimes you've got to know when to Bail. cut your losses now i'd had a really great time there during my phd and mm -hmm. everyone was you know super supportive but i just you know for me i didn't see a future in in doing that i wasn't that interested mm -hmm. probably should have stayed on you know you never know um but and it, you have to leave yeah. at some point you can't stay in one institution because I, I think it's bad for you as a scientist in what way i think it's important to see how other people do things so in some ways when you do a phd it's an apprenticeship and then your next job you're you're still learning but mm. In some ways, the people who are managing you maybe still see you as a student, right? Rather than someone who's moved on from that right, state. Right. 
But the other thing is you just get used to how things are done. You uh-huh. think that's how things are done. And I think when you move around, you can find that's not necessarily the way. Right, right. You know, there are different approaches and there are different ways. And the more people you can be learn from, I think especially in your formative years as a scientist, the better. So I think if you have opportunities to travel during a PhD or mm-hmm. during a degree, let's say to do maybe a semester in a different country or, you know, go to a, a, colli- you know, a collaborator's lab, I mean, that's, that's a really great experience. Yeah, definitely. Because it brings you to new places, mm. you meet new people, you see there are different ways of doing things. Right. Maybe you learn new, new ways of, you know, managing things sure. or... You know, not everyone, you know, has the best boss in the world, yeah, you know, yeah. or that. But maybe you can learn how to manage, you know, or deal with someone like that. Because that's important, sure. no matter where you go, is, yeah. is you know, managing up as well as down. Yeah. You know, you've, you've got to learn how to interact with people who are sure. in senior positions. I think sometimes um, when you get out and about, I mean, travel broadens the minds, but also working in different places and yeah. experiencing different cultures in a lab. Some places will be much stricter, some places will be a bit more a bit freer but mm. you know i think it's good to get out and about if yeah. you've only experienced one thing you you're you're missing out yeah i totally agree with you look i'm, I'm about to hit my phd next year mm. so i'm not even up to a postdoc but i've i've tried to travel mm. um at least to china i've I, yeah. I got a couple of scholarships and when yeah. i when i went there um one was for this chinese speaking competition that i competed yeah. at uh, for the finals over there and they gave me like pretty much all the expense paid to trip over there but awesome. i met some of the smartest people i'd ever met in my life people who could speak yeah. like six different languages people who were yeah. physicists and engineers and philosophers yeah. and like people from stanford harvard yeah. the top universities and i thought yeah. this is the importance of traveling yeah because these people expand your mind and you would have never um, had this yeah. opportunity if, if you didn't take the risk and actually come and travel. Yeah, no, you, you've got to get out and about. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, as much as as anything, you have to, you know, encounter new ways of thinking. Mm. Actually, there's a lot of studies that say, you know, becoming multilingual actually changes how you perceive things. It changes the way you think mm. and your perceptions. So, so that's obvious. I'm terrible at other languages <laughs> apart from swearing. Just, um, just <laughs> Irish, English, and English, English. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I did French and, oh, and did Gaelic really? at school. Oh, wow. But I have no aptitude uh-huh. for learning languages. So, wow. I mean, I can ask for beer in a number of languages. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the no, which most is a, which useful. Is a, which yeah. is a good skill. You remind uh-huh. me of my friend. He knows he went to um, Mexico mm-hmm. and or Brazil, and mm-hmm. he only knew one one word. Almost said, Vieja, por favor. Beer, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. <laughs> just the one though <laughs> you just kept asking yeah, that yeah, question yeah. over and over again yeah uh, you know um, there was one guy uh, I know and uh, yeah he was going to Germany and the only phrase he'd heard was zwei beer bitte so two beers please oh nice but obviously he walked into a bar and they were looking at him weird because he wanted two beers and he was on his own <laughs> <laughs> like my imaginary friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not, are you thirsty? Uh, it's you know? hilarious. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you Irish people drink, don't you? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, or, or, you know, they thought it was an interesting, you know, way to pick up people. Right. You know, you know it's just like, less, well, I'm sure somebody will come. <laughs> <laughs> that's not actually, that's not a bad way. That's pretty yeah. good, yeah. Yeah, so, CBs. Oh, I've, I've got two drinks. Want to help yeah. me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, that's, the many things you learn on the journey through science. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, the other thing, you know, depending on where you are, I mean, 
you know, some science is done in the pub. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's um, and in, in certain countries that the the level to which that happens is different as well. Right. So um, there, there's also a, a cultural aspect as well. Mm. You know that you s- you have to get used to how some people do things. Right. As well. So in Britain. There, there's there's a real pub culture around it, and a lot of stuff goes on. Obviously, conferences get a bit messy for <laughs> for, for some people, but in the in the US, it's very much business hours. Okay, um, and 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 that's a little bit different. And <coughs> Australia is a kind of a mix. Oh, it's a okay. bit of a hybrid. That's cool. You know, Ireland's a bit more like the the US. Did, oh, really? No, it's a well, it's I a kind of a hybrid as well. A bit more like the UK, but in some ways. You know, um, some people are very um, careerist and career-minded, and I see. you know, um, you'll only find them in their office, right? You know, right. and they don't come out to the pub <laughs> um, too much, or you know, have fun, right? You know, in the in, in the same way. So you know, but it's it's tends to be very variable, right? But um, but no, I I mean, mostly plugging through a, a career in sciences is just a good experience. Uh, in many, you don't get to meet real people very often. I tend to find you just like spend most of your time with scientists, and occasionally you meet civilians, and then you <laughs> end up with the old problem of trying to explain what you do. <laughs> what <laughs> Not you? sounding like a madman. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's like you know they're like, so what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, I'm a scientist. I have a strange fascination with spores, molds, and fungus, <laughs> 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 like the guy from Ghostbusters, you That's know. <laughs> And and uh, you know, so, or you just go. Well, I I, I work on thrush. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you know, this is it's, it's it's the best opening line yeah. you can have. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh god, you are you're a pilot. I'm a thrush. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, but you know funny. that's 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 a life in in that's science. Hilarious. It's, it's, but I, I think part of your podcast is, is a really good thing about you know listening to people, but also the idea of like thinking about how to communicate what you do. Mm. You know, because I think a lot of scientists, you know, we don't, we're very insular, you know, we're, yes. we're stuck in our worlds. We don't even talk to bacteriologists. Yeah. You know, if you work on fungi, it's, it's not that you don't want to talk to them, they won't talk to you. Right. You know, because, you know, and everyone's in their little silos. That's true, yeah. And, and, and we definitely don't talk to chemists. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because, like, physicists give um, biologists shit, chemists <laughs> give biologists shit, and then we turn around and give like psychologists shit, yeah. and yeah. then it's, it's like a vicious. <clears throat> it's a vicious like cycle of abuse. It's just, <laughs> it's just hilarious, you know. Because yeah. from the outside, you're like, ah, you guys are all the same shit. What are you guys on about? You know. Yeah, but you, you know, but there's a certain amount of you know, my fungus can jump higher than your bacteria. <laughs> you know, ne 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 ne. You know. Um, and That's it, yeah, and my cool my shit is cooler than yours. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Mine was mine got on the news yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody's gonna die from your disease. Nobody That's famous, so you know. Um, for a while, we were talking about how to how to because when when I left Scotland, I went back to Ireland for a while because in the period I'd been away from Ireland, mm. um, it had become much more successful. Oh. Uh, so there was a dot com boom. There was lots of money in the country. And there was a lot of investment. Mm. Turned out it was all on shifting sands and poor foundations. Right. But in the ten years I'd been away from Ireland, it had changed and had become a lot more like a research culture. In the UK, there were many more opportunities to do science. There was a lot more funding. There was, you know, PhD students. Ships mm. were more readily available, and and so it it had completely turned around. Um, unfortunately, a year after I, I went back to Ireland, the GFC happened, and the place went back to 
you know, became a bit of a basket case again. Right. You know, it was just horrible, you know, how... Um, but, I mean, that was difficult as well because yeah. there was pay cuts all around and I think my pay dropped 15% in a year. Whoa. and it, it became really tough and then the avenues for continued funding um, dried up. Right. And, and, and so from going back kind of optimistic about potentially having a future, you know, back home... Um, I just had to start looking around again, you know, and go, right, where hasn't been destroyed, yeah. <laughs> you right. know, by, by the financial crisis. And, um, you know, and so that was around 08, 09, and you are right. just like, well, this, this is, you know, it, you know and, and again, because science is one of those things that, you know, a government, when they have a surplus, is, especially in Ireland, was they'd never really invested in science before, but they had all this money they didn't mm -hmm. know what to do with. And they thought, we'll invest in science. Um, we'll have lots of patents, lots of companies. It'll, you know, if we put 10 billion in, we'll get 100 billion back. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't work mm. that way. You have to invest for a century or two, you know, in a, in a culture. Yeah. You know, you don't get it in a decade. That's right. And, um, and, and so when I, when I was there, I mean, I was just, they, they, they took money straight out of science. It was the first thing that was getting chopped. Shit. You know, and you can see that, you know, in the UK, I mean, even though they ring-fenced science funding, it wasn't linked to inflation. So the budget was stable. So effectively, they cut the budget, mm. you know. Yeah. And, um, and I guess here, you know, um, Australia does well, you know, for its population size, definitely punches above its weight scientifically. But again, you know, the, the tax base is 20 million people. Right. You know, it's it's a third the size of the UK. Right. You know, so it can never, you know, really financially compete. And so um, so here, you know, funding for research is, you know, crazily competitive. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, it, it's getting worse. I mean, the, the funding success rates in medical research are less than 15%. That's scary. And, you that know, sucks. so... Which is why I, I think sometimes, you know, when I talk to students... Um, you know, they, they don't consider having to move away. Right. Yeah, no, I, I know, think... To yeah. pursue a career. That's right. And um, I think that's an important option to think about. Yeah. Um, you know, there's Aussies all over the globe, so right. like some of you have thought of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or us, yeah. as I'm Aussie now. That's, that's <laughs> it's interesting because when I as in my first and second year, I, I wanted to do science, but... Yeah. I didn't know what would it would encompass as in yeah. as in what you had to do after you yeah. finish your PhD. You have yeah. to travel, otherwise like like that's everybody's yeah. looking for that. You need to get that experience yeah. and jobs you yeah. you may not find it in Sydney. Um so yeah. so that th that's the challenging and security is also a big thing yeah. in, in working in science. So you did your postdocs but you came to Australia to do a third postdoc? No, no, no. So my third postdoc was the one in Ireland. And at that point, um, I was on sort of one-year contracts in research, which right. is a horrible way to live. Right, very, yeah. Um, and, you know, it was just because it was very hard to secure long-term funding. Sure. And so I came to the point where we had, um, a, they offered a lecturer job in, in Dublin. Okay. Um, but the contract was only two years with a rolling one year after that. And then, because um, I was looking, I was really frustrated with short-term contracts. I think a number of researchers will probably say that's the worst thing in their lives. Right. You know, um, is, is the insecurity uh, yeah. of, of the positions because you can't necessarily put down roots. Nope. 
and, and if you do, then you're really restricting yourself. Yeah. Um, so you have to be prepared to move every three years. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, and it, and it depends on, you know, have you been able to get money or has money come up somewhere? So you've always, and and in that time, you know, you've either got to be applying for your own funding or you've just got to be publishing really well and be a very desirable candidate. So there's always a pressure, you know, in in that regard. But so um, did, did you uh, apply here for like how did you? Yeah, so did you come so straight to UWS. Sorry. Yeah, I okay. did. Um, so so it was a bit of a weird thing. I um I I was looking for positions, and uh, there were a few. I was thinking maybe postdoctoral positions, um, and basically um, I saw the a job being advertised at what was then UWS. Right. I didn't know much about. UWS, um, but I was like Sydney. I've been there on holiday, so you know that's not so bad. Obviously, I wouldn't come to Campbelltown for a holiday, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, it's you know, you don't know that at the time, right? And uh, yeah, I just took a punt on an application, and um, yeah, and you know, there was an interview on the phone oh. um, rather than Skype, which was good because it was about six a.m. <laughs> in Ireland, and. Uh, I just walked out in, in my pajamas, got on the phone, did a presentation, had a chat, and uh, a few weeks later, you know, these guys offered me a job. Nice. Um, they offered me a job in Ireland at the same time, and uh, I, I had been saying to my colleagues, look, I, I would swim across an ocean for tenure. <laughs> and, uh, uh. you know, basically I said after probation, it's a tenured position uh, here right. in, in, you know, Western. And I was like, well... I'm not a hypocrite, so yeah. I'm, I'm gonna. Scro- I'm not gonna swim though. Like they paid for the flight, and wow. um, it's a bit of an upheaval. You know, you know, you're not gonna see your family. Yeah. Um, and luckily, I don't have. I'm not married and don't have children, so there's there's no. You know, I don't have people crying because they're gonna right. miss their friends. Right. Um, you know, and you don't have to move a family, but um, but yeah, some of my colleagues have have done that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, it was. Nobody was hiring at that time, mm. and certainly not to a tenured position. So, okay, they're not offering tenured positions anymore, are they? Because uh, I, some, I, f- I feel like the move has gone towards more casual employment, and and um, less tenure positions. Yeah, I I think there, there's 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 a bit of things are going to change very soon in terms of the casualization of teaching. Um, in the U.S., it's almost they've moved away from hiring full-time academics and there's a high degree of casualization. Mm. And I think Australia is, yeah, it's on that knife point of going either way. I think what they're looking at more is maybe fixed-term contracts for academics in certain circumstances. But if you want to get people, like, there's no way I would have come to Western without the carrot of tenure. Right. And I think a lot of people wouldn't have come either. You know, um, but, you know, and, and that's important. You need some stability in your life after being, you know, uh, a vagabond scientist for a decade. You yeah. know, you just want to put down roots somewhere. Sure. And, um, you know, I hadn't done teaching. I'd done sort of full-time research. So that was exciting and new for about a week. <laughs> and and then you realize your life changes. <laughs> and then you have an existential crisis. And then you're like, was it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny <laughs> no I, I mean the thing you know I didn't become a scientist because I wanted to teach anyone right. 
I, I, you know, was interested in subject areas. I wanted to, pursue, you know, yeah. pursue knowledge in, in that okay. form. And I think a lot of science is like that. It's yeah. not necessarily about the thing. You know, it's not that I'm interested in mushrooms, but I'm interested in mushrooms, but I also want to expand knowledge. You yeah. know, you get to discover things no one's ever known before. For sure, yeah. You know, and, and even if that's a small thing, um, it's still new. Not yeah. everyone's doing things that are a Nobel Prize. No, that's true. You know, and, and if... If they were, then there'd be ten scientists. Yeah, no, 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 that's true. <laughs> you know, and yeah, and and it wouldn't be a thing. But yeah, when I went to Dublin, I, I went to full fat medical research. So that was looking at an infection called aspergillosis. So I moved from uh, a centre of biomolecular sciences in Scotland, which was very much structural biology and fundamental biology, to looking at. Uh, sort of medical research was much more applied. Mm. Um, so I was in a school of medicine in Dublin and um, in a department of clinical microbiology. And so that was probably, you know, that was a really good project in many ways. I mean, it was difficult in terms of the, the funding, which, you know, for the first two or three years was stable, but then um, for the final year and a half was a, a bit less stable. Right. Um, but that was really good because it was an EU project again, but... Um, doing that as a postdoc, you get a lot more out of it. So mm. I went to a lot of meetings, went to mm. a lot of other labs, made a lot of um, connections and collaborations. And, you know, and a lot of that is what kind of sustains my, my research right. career as well, are, are those connections. Wow. You know, getting involved with them in terms of, you know, committees, grant writing, writing um, research articles, you know, co-supervision of students and and just everything you know has has come out of a lot of those associations and and so at, at some point the other thing you have to do you know going from being um, a phd student to a postdoc is and it's not always easy for everyone is learning how to network mm. and, and 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 form collaborations and associations with other groups because you know nobody does science in isolation no and um, because a lot of questions are big and they're difficult and different people have different expertise or different right. access, then, uh, yeah, you have to work across, kind of need everyone across to borders. Yeah. And uh, everyone does their bit, <laughs> you hope. Yeah. Except when it comes to writing. <laughs> it's like, we have to get a report in on the 5th. It's like, I was like, no, no, I, I start working on the deadline. It's like, <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's okay for you. It's you know, nice. you're that a professor. Like, that sounds like uh, group projects in undergrad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, that's God. hilarious. Um, let me ask you about what you're doing now. So are you uh, currently researching? Yeah. Yeah, so so the research I'm doing now ties into the work I, I did in Dublin where I, I was looking at aspergillosis. Mm -hmm. So the, the lab situation is a bit different now. So I'm, you know, basically my own lab leader. Mm -hmm. So um, you're PI. PI. PI, yeah. PI without the money, you know. <laughs> you don't have as much money. It's obviously it can be quite difficult when you're not in a research-only institution mm -hmm or where you have a lot of time devoted to teaching, yeah. um, it can be a little more challenging. But this is why students are really good, having PhD students or master's students mm. or honors students when we had those. Mm. You know, you can get people to work on, on projects. So we've really been looking at um, fungal virulence and virulence of human pathogenic fungi. Mm. So 
it's very hard to experiment on people. Mm. You know, apparently there's human ethical no, guidelines, and yeah. you're you're not allowed to do it. So that that's that's been a problem in 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 everyone's research. Right. Um, but apparently it's illegal if I do it, and I don't want to get So so we look at it from a molecular basis, but we're also moving into using invertebrate models mm -hmm. because basically invertebrates have a simplified immune system. And you can use the, and they are infected by fungi, so you can test fungal virulence in um, insect larvae. Okay. So basically, uh, mealworms, you know, the next upcoming food source, but also you can inject them with fungi. Right. And uh, you can start examining virulence. And um, we're also looking at alternative treatments to antibiotics. So looking at uh, photodynamic therapy, where we use. Um, photo-excitable substances right. such as rose bengal and they traverse biological membranes and so those end up in bacteria or in fungi and then you shine a light and that photo excites the substance and then it kills the target organism oh wow so so that's that's been something we've been working on you know as a, as a smallish project for the last few years but you know some students have have gotten projects out of and it's something that that can potentially be developed so it's it's not good for necessarily um, invasive infections, but for superficial infections, mm. skin infections, right? Um, like a really topical cream, yeah. they can shine yeah. right at it. Yeah, yeah. So you put a cream on that wow. contains the photo excitable substance, then you shine a light of specific wavelength, and then Boom. kill the organism. Hopefully, not kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's part of the testing we're doing. We're trying to see how yeah. effective. Um, it is against particular topical sure. infections. So, sort of the ringworm fungi and right. you know the ones that cause athletes foot yep. and also looking at mrsa because one of the things with staph aureus is that it tends to cause you know um, necrotic infections on the on the skin so or wound infections right. so this this could be uh, a nice application so it multi-resistant methicillin resistant staphylococcus aureus sorry yeah yeah so um so yeah um so they're kind of the projects that what, you want. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm mainly interested. In, um, the other thing I'm doing with a, a colleague called Haley Green is uh, she does forensic anthropology, and so we've started looking at using um, signatures of microbes after death as a way to determine how long someone's been dead. Oh. So looking at post-mortem interval by oh, wow. assessing the microbes that are growing on the corpse. Wow, so you could use this for forensics. Yeah, yeah, potentially. So they've used um, insects for a long time in forensic entomology, but forensic microbiology has been emerging over the last sort of five years. Wow. And so it, it uses a number of skills. It uses, you know, sort of um, high throughput DNA sequencing. Mm. It uses, you know, a lot of, you know, interesting analysis and you know, combines well with um, standard forensic biology. So, so that's something we're into as well. I mean, it's it, it's kind of it's good to have these kind of fun side projects. Mm. I mean, luckily, I don't go into the field and collect the samples because <laughs> they have pigs rotting in the fields yeah. in Hawkesbury. Yeah, <laughs> and and yeah. then students have to go and swab that's swab true. the pigs at yeah. both ends. Yeah. Well, there was an MRS student. I think she was. Uh, it's like a 
quote unquote COC that she gave yeah. last year, and uh, she was yeah. in the same cohort as I was, yeah. and she was looking at like rotten pigs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably staff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the students <laughs> who's working with us at yeah, the moment. Like, wow. um, but uh, but yeah, I, I mean the the problems they have with the pigs is the way they decompose. I mean sometimes the ends blow out. And they bloat and oh yeah, of course they yeah. they, they liquefy and Can there's you maggot masses oh. running out of their noses and oh. yeah, and I, I can't imagine. I, apparently, there was this may be completely fictitious, but uh, apparently um, there was a whale that that um, kind of washed up on 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 the shore. In, I think it was in America or somewhere. Yeah. And they had the great idea of exploding it yeah it's not probably the best way to dispose of <laughs> the whole place stunk like yeah no um, it turns out depending on the time of year um that you know a dead body um may, may bloat and deform significantly depending on the time of the year yeah so you know if it's warmer the microbes grow quicker right, produce more gas within the body and they they bloat up yeah uh, I think in winter, if you know, because water is less available, especially, and they can mummify, oh. and so so you get different forms oh. of of decomposition, oh, uh, which so cool. which then presents different challenges in trying to determine, you know, um, when they died, right. or how long they've been there, and so looking at distinctive microbial populations can be could be helpful for that I'm but um, that, yeah. yeah don't stick a pin in a bloating corpse <laughs> no, don't do that um, because yeah <laughs> that won't be a fun experience most no likely. and and definitely stay away from whales <laughs> yeah <no>. kids <laughs> all of you out there in in tv land that's fine <laughs> but 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 yeah so it's good to the, the good thing about you know once you become a lecturer as opposed to a principal researcher in a research institute it gives you a little bit of freedom to do projects like that mm. And sort of, you can take a step back and sort of think about what you're doing more. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when you're at a research institute, there's a lot of pressure to publish, to bring in money, mm -hmm. to make sure that you are a key player right. in, in your field. Right. And um, so, and it's impossible to be that way at a university, especially like this university, where it's, um, although they say they're research focused, they're very teaching intensive. Mm. Um, really teaching intensive yeah yeah um but you know it's fair enough i mean that's the business of a university is teaching students, students yeah. but also doing research so um so it's a little bit different and it takes a bit of getting used to especially when you've come from uh being a full-time research, researcher yeah. and also dealing with students is, is a bit different that's, i'm sure it <laughs> well you know it's it, it helps you own. with your people skills of course yeah but i think it's good as well in terms of communication i think um in terms of presentation as well you know when you're doing two-hour lectures every week um it's very different to doing a 15-minute presentation at a conference that's true and you don't do those every week no. so it's been it's good you know, it's been it's been very good in terms yeah. of you know speaking for sure um but you know and it, and it helps you deal with you know lots of people from very diverse backgrounds yeah. like, like our students so it's you know if if you're not learning stuff in the job then then you're going backwards so it's, no, it's been there, there there have been valuable elements because a lot of the time i'm just happy to talk to my colleagues or once upon a time you know and you know, just talk about my research and run away from humans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, unless someone's in a lab coat, you know, it's like just run away from them. <laughs> you know, um, but I, I think that's that's probably been a problem in science. 
for a while. Yeah. And 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 I think you know, with, with things like your podcast and you know young scientists coming through who really want to communicate, I think you know that's that's definitely a positive for the future. For the future. For the future. <laughs> Let's. Um, we have two more questions that okay. I'd like to ask you. Because we we've yeah, gone yeah, past one hour, a lot of good good uh, luck with editing. Yeah, no, we don't, we usually don't even edit this. Oh no, just just take out the beginning and yeah. and probably a bit at the end, and that's yeah. it. Oh, okay, and we just smack it on. Um, yeah, there will be swearing now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would be okay? So t- two last questions. Yep. Looking into the future, um, and this can be in whatever context. What scares you? Into the future. Um, you know, I'm not really one of those worried about the future, scared kind of people. You know, I'm I'm not. Look, you know, life's going to happen. I think a lot of people worry about technology. You know, I've had some conversation re- conversations recently with colleagues who, who you know, are very concerned about where artificial intelligence is going or, or where technology is taking us. And, you know, if we're not moving forwards, then you know we're in trouble mm. as, you know i mean that 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 is hum- human nature you know that that's what what's done so much for us is embracing technology moving forwards you know society has to change you know it can't stay in one place so i think change is really good mm. i'd sort of echo you know steve jobs's sentiments you know when he was dying you said like death is probably the most important thing in life because it's it's an agent of change mm. you you know at a certain point you know your values are fixed like most of your thoughts are fixed most of what you're not going to learn too many deep things after a certain age if if people like that remain then there's no turnover there's no new ideas there's mm. no forward momentum mm. and and so you know you have to just em- embrace the time mm. that you have, not be afraid. Mm. If you spend your time being afraid, you're just you've not going to live life. Yeah, you've wasted your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a pretty bad state to be in. Yeah. People who are afraid tend to make bad decisions yeah. or they make decisions for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, I think it's good to embrace change. I think it's good to embrace the idea that, you know, you'll have your time, make the most of it, mm. and then, you know, hand off to the next generation and and good luck to them although i'm not leaving my job anytime <laughs> soon <laughs> I was like, you can hand that off to me all yeah. you want <laughs> no. i'd be happy to take that tenure position yeah yeah so well, well that was the thing i remember being a student <laughs> walking around the corridors going when are you retiring when are you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, ha- how quick's the turnover in this you know because you know, i think when you when you get to the point where you're like right i think i want to be you know when these crazy academics mm-hmm. you're like great when did the jobs appear yeah usually when they carry someone out of their office <laughs> no, that's true you, you know and yeah. and, uh, and 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 so there are many more you know phd graduates than there are people who are ever going to sure. end up in positions in academic position, and yeah. and so it's it's good to realize that there are a variety of options outside mm-hmm. of it but that you know, I was a postdoc for 10 years. I was, you sometimes have to be very patient. Um, but al- also the requirements in fields are a bit different. Like if, if you want to be a microbiologist and, you know, get into an academic position, you have to postdoc, you have to publish a lot. Mm. You have to, you know, make a lot of groundwork. 
out in the world right. before you'll be hired. Whereas in other disciplines, you could walk into an academic job straight from your PhD. Sure, yeah. Uh, and so it's also it's a bit discipline specific right. uh, as well. But um, no, I mean, what scares me? You know, just the standard stuff. You know, losing the old marbles as I get older. You know, but I, I don't think it's it's a good way to live if you're spending your time worried about about bad things. You know, we could all die in the morning. But, no, that's you know, true. As long as you live the good life, you know, that's all that matters. Yeah. What's the flip side of that is? What are you most hopeful for when you look into the um, future? I I I just like to the idea that you know progress is, is being made in spite of some of the you know sort of negative detractors like in spite of things like trump anti-science movement and that we're we're generally going forwards mm. and and i think you know when you know obviously a flat earth society there's a lot of young members but we're not talking about you know these these guys are hilarious um, you know you know but um but no i but when you see the advances that are being made i'd love to be able to come back in 200 years mm. and see where the field is you know, it's it's just the amazing opportunities and understanding biology at, you know, much, you know, and, and just seeing what the questions are, you know, what's been answered, what where are we going next? And I think, you know, just thinking of the progress that's been made in a century compared to 2000 years prior is incredible. Um, mm. So where we end up in the next sort of 50 years will be hopefully um, really, really amazing, you know, and you know, d despite the challenges that face us in the short term, you know, I think the long term health looks really positive and fungi will rule <laughs> the world <laughs> and surrounding suburbs. Uh, maybe the cordyceps mushrooms can uh, take over our brains and then... Uh, I hope so. Hey. I, or is, which game is it? Is it The Last of Us? That's, a, sure. that's a, a PlayStation game and... Uh, this fungal disease turns people into zombies. zombies. I think it's a bit based like on the, the like cordyceps yeah. um, idea. At least I, 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 there was a Vsauce episode that, that tied that together. So I quite good. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, seriously. That yeah. makes good videos. But isn't yeah. the, doesn't the cordyceps mushroom infect ants, right? And in a bunch of animals. It infects a lot of insects. Yeah. Not so much animals that we know of, but there are different strains of cordyceps, and they all have a specific insect host. Right. And, and, um, but in animals, the closest thing is toxoplasmosis. Oh, yeah, yeah, the cat one. The yeah, cat the parasite. cat one, yeah. So they yeah. did the, the classic experiments where um, uh, it turns out that toxoplasmosis makes mice and rats more risky in their behavior. So that a standard rat or mouse will run away from cat urine, whereas one with toxoplasmosis gets curious about it and goes towards it, which would indicate that you're heading into the territory of, of, of a cat. I heard that it gets sexually attracted to the urine. Well, Is that true? I, I, I don't know exactly, but um, it's thought that, you know, especially with undercooked meats, a lot of people have undiagnosed toxoplasma. And so there was one... And I don't know how true the study is. I saw it in a newspaper, so fake news. You've got to be careful. Um, was that they found that people in car accidents in France mm. had a disproportionate incidence of toxoplasma. Wow. I heard the same thing about motorbike accidents. Yeah, it's possible. 
that it it could also just be being a, a man between 18 and 23 right. is the equivalent, you know, in terms of risky behavior. Um, but, um, but yeah, so it seems to dull inhibitions and lead to risky behavior. Because basically, um, the cat is the host that toxoplasma reproduces in. So it has one of these complex parasitic life cycles. So it needs to end up in an intermediate host and then go back to its original host um, to, be, um, to undergo reproduction. So obviously, it wants to get back into a cat. Mm. So if it's ended up in a mouse, mm. you know, obviously you want the mouse to get eaten. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a dead end in people. Right. You know, you know because it's like, well, it wants you to go get yourself killed, but right. we're unlikely to end up in the mouth, in, in the stomach <laughs> of a lion. Well, that's you know, true. Yeah. Unless, you know, obviously you become a crazy cat lady and hey. get eaten by your cats, <laughs> you know, once you die and ha- have stopped feeding them. Oh, that's so it's just a mechanism that the discordyceps mushroom. Oh, sorry, a, a toxoplasmosis has is by driving people to their deaths or animals to their deaths. Potentially, so yeah. yeah. So it can complete its life cycle. That is, but it's cool. the same with cordyceps. That I mean, you know, it it, ta- it changes the behavior of the insects so that they will typically go to a higher levels in in the in the trees, so that then when the cordyceps burst out the back of their head. Um, it's able to shower spores oh. on the rest of the ants. So it's trying to turn the zombie ants into this dispersal mechanism. Oh, shit. So that's why, why it takes over. And I think ants that recognize the early signs um, kick the ants out of the colony. Right. I heard that they actually grab them and carry them. Yeah, yeah, they take home. them right away. Yeah. Be- because basically, you know, one ant infected you know, if if it gets into position, releases millions of spores. And then millions and of ants get Then infected. lots of ants are like, you know, damn it, we can't work today. <laughs> Gone zombie. The yeah. walking dead. The uh, walking ant, dead of ants. Ant I- edition. I think those are the ants you want to come across, though, because they're less likely to attack you. Oh, if they if they have the cordyceps, I, I think so because okay. they're they're not as interested oh. in, <laughs> in, in in defending the colony oh. or doing anything good. That's true. They're, they're just you know hanging around so they can kill <laughs> off their friends. Um, but no, I I mean I I guess the interesting thing about those organisms is is you know determining what chemical mediators are influencing behavior. Right. Um, because you know if you can pin down um, some of the chemical signals in terms of behavior, then you can look at you know, helping people with behavioral disorders right. as well. So you, so, you, so you can pick apart the chemistry uh, as well a bit and, and, and see if something beneficial. That is... Or it's just easier to send soldiers to war if they're just, you know, a bit zombified. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, <laughs> just on, on a dark note. <laughs> <laughs> on a dark note, actually, <laughs> on a dark note, that reminds me of Black Mirror. Have yeah. you watched Black Mirror? No, I haven't. I've heard it's forward. really good. I'll I'll send you uh, when I send you this episode. Yeah. I'll send you a link to to an episode okay. that you'll definitely appreciate because yeah. it's on that on that theme. Yeah. But okay, guys, an hour Dark Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an hour and twenty minutes. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. Yeah, you're but totally welcome. Appreciate it. This was really yeah. fun. Okay, I'm glad it was good. Thanks for listening to Blabcoats. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so 
Send us questions or comments to blabquotes at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.